Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. What's up, world? This is your man, Nick Eden, and I am here with the talk of the town. I know you're going to dig this. Here's the talk of the town. Take you to the hometown Martinette in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Right now, and you know what? It's really thanks to the TV show The Game 
the game's ratings have been so good that this is really igniting the fire in BET to put in some more scripted television. And Viacom is taking notice, so we may start seeing some more scripted shows throughout Viacom's entire network, which I think is good. That's going to put a lot of actors back into work because, you know, reality TV has put a lot of people out of work. Right. That's all. But, you know, that that's a good thing. What else is going on this year? Oh, the I Am Music 2 tour. Lil Wayne's tour. I Am Music 2. Came to Atlanta this past weekend. Now, I try not to. People say I hate on Lil Wayne, and I, I don't hate on Lil Wayne. I really don't. I just think the madness has got to stop. I think there's got to be a personal level of responsibility. Number one, I had several of my friends to attend this concert. This is the one for Atlanta. And I had several people to attend the concert, and they said the crowd was extremely young. Like, we have to be dropped off by our parents kind of young. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yet yeah. and still, we, we know the content of Lil Wayne's music. Yep. You know, I'm not denying that the boy can rap. But considering the content of his music, and he knows his crowd is getting younger and younger. But that wasn't the worst part. Well, it wasn't the worst part wasn't really bad if you're a grown man. Nicki Minaj brought up two young ladies on the stage, and she had the crowd vote on who was the best looking one. Now, whoever the best, you can go to WorldStarHipHop.com and view this video. Whoever was the best looking female that the crowd voted for, Nicki Minaj will give them a lap dance. And she proceeded to, in front of all these kids, grope this woman by her breast, uh, put her put her hands in her nether region, you know, get on her lap and grind and everything. And like I said, that's good for a grown show. It's great for a grown show because I'm not being funny. I'm not the biggest Nicki Minaj fan, but she was looking pretty good in those shorts, in those tights. I'm just saying. But my thing about it is, if you know your crowd is getting younger and younger, don't you think you might want to tone that down? Maybe just a little bit. Save it for the after party. Save it for another show. Maybe I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, the crowd was. And don't get me wrong. Yes, there were some older people in the crowd. And when I say older, it probably wasn't anybody in there over the age of thirty-five. But right. It, even still, it's just like, come on, y'all. Let's come on, son. As my man Ed Level would say, come on, son. Way, though, I mean, like, why why is she doing it to a a female anyway? Well, and that's a, that's a, that's my next thing because it was just a couple of months ago where she said she was upset about the the lesbian and the bisexual rumors. Right. So you know, you continue to perpetuate. Right. You go to every one city. And you say every time you go to a city, you're signing all the girls' boobs, and then and it's it's like just come out and say that you like girls. It's okay. It's okay. For the most part, men like that. It's all right. Mm. Just say it. Say you like girls. We know Missy likes girls. Yeah, we know they that. Had a rumor about. Yeah, did you you heard about the rumor about a month ago about her and Carrie Hilson? The what? Yeah, they oh, had a rumor. No, a couple no, of... no, 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 no. Come on now. Yeah, Nick, they, they had a rumor. Nick, they had hard. a rumor a couple months ago that basically Carrie was in the studio with. Uh, with Missy Now you know Now Carrie says This is false I'm I'm looking at the facts I'm just looking at the facts Carrie Hilson is signed To Polo Don's label Zone 4 right. right Zone 4 As a label Is Distributed by Timberland's Mosley Music Group Through Interscope Right Right now, Everybody knows that the Timberland and Missy Came into the game together And they've always Worked on projects together Carrie was a writer Prior to her You know Stepping out of her own As an artist 
Now, it said right. a couple of years ago that Carrie was working with Missy when she first started working with him at camp. And basically, you know, you know, Missy put some game on her and, and, and supposedly, you know, turned out. Are you now, fucking serious? Excuse my language. Oh, my God. Well, no, no. Now, let's think about this now. Let's okay, think about okay, Carrie okay. Hilton's first album. Carrie Hilton's, Carrie Hilton's first album, it has some sexy songs on there. But for the right, most part, right. Carrie was pretty toned down. You know, she wasn't a little too outrageous. Right. Now, we look at this new album. You know, she's got the one video where she's showing the first canal all over the place. You know? Yep. She's got the up, She's got another video with Chris Brown where they pumping and grinding on cars and, and motor oil and all kind of stuff like that. You know, so I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, you know, she says she's trying to beef up her image, and that's what she feels like. But, hey, and more power to her, but I don't know. You know, a lot of these girls, when they get around Missy, all of a sudden they get extra sexy. If you remember, back in the day, when Miss, before Missy was working with Aaliyah, R. Kelly was working with Aaliyah. Now, we know R. Kelly did his thing, and, and, and rest in peace, Aaliyah, I hope he didn't see on her. But what we do know is, is that after she stopped working with R. Kelly, she started working with Missy, and her image became a lot sexier. The same thing with Sierra. When Sierra stopped working with Jazzy Faye and started working with Missy, her image was a lot sexier. So I'm not being funny. Maybe there's a little truth to this. Maybe. Now, I don't know if you've heard this. Speaking of Carrie Hilson, but Carrie Hilson posed nude for Allure magazine. Now, she was covered up. It was for, it was for their annual skin cancer issue. Uh-huh. But I've, I've seen this issue before, and I've seen the young ladies who have posed new for it before. Carrie's was, well, let's just say it's my screensaver right now. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. It's, it's, it's my screensaver right now. So. So you know, I got you. I got you. I got you. So, I mean, and, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like Carrie Hilton. No, 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 no. Carrie Hilton is, is looking pretty good. Matter of fact, there's a lot of females looking pretty good right now in hip-hop and R&B. Oh, yeah. um, and anybody, everyone should remember her. She's one of the biggest artists in the world, Tony Braxton. She just debuted her new reality show on WeTV called Braxton, The Family Affair. This has got her and, like, all 18 of her sisters. And it's just about their trials and tribulations as Tony tries to get back into the music business. Uh, her youngest sister, Tamar, is trying to break into the music business. And, and I'll put it to you this way. Uh, for the ladies, it's good for the ladies if you like drama. It's got plenty of drama in there. I will say that. Especially with the youngest sister, Tamar. Especially seeing that her husband is Tony's manager. So it's got a fair share of drama in there. And for the guys, I mean, I'm not being funny. We all know what Tony Braxton looks like. Imagine the whole family up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember the group they had. Yeah. Remember the group they had back in the day? Oh, yeah. And they still look good. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. They yeah. still look good. Even the, the, older, the, the older sister that's in Maryland, she kind of sloppy with it, but she look good. All right. Yo. Oh, Yo. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> yeah. I heard okay. somebody say this as a joke. They said you can line them up from the youngest all the way up to Tony Braxton. You'll have the line of evolution like the monkeys. Uh, wow. That ain't even right, man. That, that ain't, ain't even right. right. <laughs> that ain't 
They all look right. they look good. They, Even the model from look the good. monkey to the human, which is Tony. No, they them 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 girls look, look good. good. Them, yeah, look they good. look good. It was pretty funny when I heard it. Yeah. I, now, I would I would date Tony Braxton, even though she's about fifty. I would I would date her right now. Well, you know, that's the thing. That's the other thing. They're still Playboy is still offering Tony Braxton to to shoot the cover of Playboy, and she says she's actually considering it now. She needs a money. Need money. I'm just being real. She needs money. I'm not gonna let you talk about Tony Braxton like that. What's <laughs> up, so, Tony? Hey, this is Al for the Middle Man Show. I apologize, but man, I mean, well, I, I mean, I'm a bit funny, but they only—it's like I think you're offering like thirty thousand or something like that. I mean, I mean, but she's considering it. She's considering it, so you never know. You hey, never, you never know. Hey, she can knock out a couple bills with that thirty thousand. You know what I'm saying? Pay some taxes back. You know? Man, she is. Um, she is one point eight million dollars in debt. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It'll not got something, man. It'll put a little. Then they'll put the lights on for a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Anyway, now speaking of, of reality shows, I know we've been on this topic for a little bit. For those who are fans of Diddy's Making the Band, we all know that one of his breakout stars from the group band, Kane Aubrey O'Day, had her own television show, her own reality show, her debut on Oxygen a little earlier this year. This past Monday, the finale aired. Now, as a part of the finale, as a part of the finale, she decided that she was going to reach out to Diddy, whom she said she had not talked to since being fired from Vanity Kane. And she basically wanted to seek her peace. So in her voicemail message, she thanked him for, you know, everything that he taught her. She thanked him for giving her her first real shot and she also ended her message with um, she hopes he has fun watching her album outsell his. And she ended her message with uh, love you, bitch. And hung up the phone. Wow. Wow. Of course, wow. this immediately set Twitter on fire. This set Twitter on fire all across the board. Now, there were only two messages and they weren't directly aimed at Aubrey O'Day. However, Right. You could kind of tell based on the timing that Diddy may have been talking to us. The first message he left was, don't write a check. Your ass can't cash. Hmm. And then the second message he left was, I don't even have a voicemail. And so now people are accusing her of lying, saying that she didn't even have his number, she didn't call him and everything. And it's being reported now that it's a possibility that since she is now signed to Universal, or which is the same distributor as Diddy, that there may be a little friction between the, the upper echelon at the company about him putting some, you know, just basically shelving her project. But I don't know. My thing is, we might not like Diddy. Diddy might not be the best rapper on earth, but you can't avoid the fact that that's a very powerful man in this business. Well, before you leave, get the album out first. <laughs> The single wasn't even out when she said this. Get the album out first. That's all I'm saying. So we may see her. We may not. Who knows? Anyway. So today we're talking about... This is actually part one in a two-part series. This week and next week. We're talking about crossover. 
or the double cross. We've all heard the stories time and time again about artists back in the 60s and the 70s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even as close as today, you know, in the last couple of years, that have had their music taken by executives and because it performed a certain way on the black charts, it hadn't made its way to the pop charts, they may give a, a white artist the song and have them cover it and take it to the pop charts, or they may do something to uh, whiten the image of the artist. They may say, oh, you're maybe a little too urban or something to that measure. So what we're going to get into today is we're going to talk about is it a, is it just a matter of crossing over or is it a double cross? Is it really just a ploy to get the black talent and use it to propel sales from white artists? Or is it we just want to whiten these artists so much, whiten these artists up so much that they're acceptable to mainstream media and it doesn't matter what it does to the artist, it doesn't matter what it does to the integrity of the music. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually go into our first song today. And, you know, the reason I say that they do this, this song, it explains it all. This is the OJs for the love of money, because that's what they're doing it for. They're doing it for the love of money. This is the middle member of Talk of the Town with Nick Eaton.
the OJs for the love of money. Their love of money must be pretty big because I forgot how long that tag on song was. Oh, yeah, man. The actual extended version of the song is like seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm glad we didn't get the extended version of the song because I almost fell asleep. Right. <laughs> anyway, if you... If you're just joining us today, this is the Middleman Presents Talk of the Town with Nick Eaton. We are talking about crossover, or is it the double cross? Black artists who have had to conform over years and years and do things that their white counterparts have not had to do just to make money, just to make their music be known, and then still get their money, their money stolen, their songs stolen, and in some cases their wives. I'm just saying. But to really understand this, we gotta go. We gotta go back. You know, this is. Well, this is what we call edutainment here, and we got to go back. We're going to go back, and I don't want to go too far over everyone's head, so we're going to use a couple of movies as a as an outline for what we're doing today. Now, next week, we actually have a guest coming in, very special guest. Can't say it right now, but you will see it coming up in the coming days. We have a very special guest who's going to come in and talk about how the artists were treated back then. But we're going to use movies as an example, and we're going to go back. Who saw the movie Cadillac Records? I'm guessing that's a yes from uh, Alan and yes. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, so so we know that was the story of of Chess Records and and you know the the rise of you know the blues and later transitioning into rock and everything. I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that blues music gave birth to rock. Rock was stolen. From urban artists right. and given to their white counterparts. You go back to a guy by the name of Muddy Water, one of the greatest bluesmen, period. From Mississippi, by the way, might I add. But during the whole Great Migration, he saw fit to go to Chicago. Now, in Chicago, that's when he started playing on the street corners, playing for different, you know, bands and everything, and caught the attention of a guy by the name of Lynn Shex who was looking to get into blues industry. Now, of course, we've seen that blues music at its, at its rawest form was very much so raw. It was it was raw. It was unadulterated. It wasn't. It was in your face, you know. It wasn't anything that, that, that was necessarily made for the kids, and it was fine like that. However, as Chess Records started, you know, getting more and more success, they started lightening things up a little bit. You know this. Now, I still think that Chuck Berry is one of the greatest musicians, period. However, when Chuck Berry came into the picture, Chuck Berry had a very, he was a lot more polished. He spoke, you know, a lot better than the Muddy Water. You know, he was he was very much so catered towards a white audience. Right. And that was really just kind of the start of, of how things were going. He take it up a few miles up to Detroit, up to Motown. Barry Gordy. And it's funny that we look at the, the songs from the golden era of Motown as being classic soul. But they were looked at as being pop records back then. Barry Gordy wanted to make sure that his records could reach the top of the pop charts and could reach white artists. A lot of his early records were taken and covered by white artists. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by covered by white artists, and it's funny because just the other night Prince was on uh George Lopez show, and he was talking about the exact same thing, people taking the songs and covering Basically, what you can do is you can take a song by an artist pretty much without their permission as long as you pay the license for it, 
You can take that song and you can re-release it in your own version of it. We've seen this plenty of times. Plenty of times. Elvis Presley's entire career was built on taking songs from black artists. That's right. That's right. Say it again. Everybody was like, oh, he has so much soul. Yep. Yep. He was feeling it. Yep. I remember... um, one of my grandparents told me that, you know, they see Elvis Presley. Uh, it's a very uh, known street down in uh, Columbus, Mississippi called 7th Avenue. That was where all the black people used to hang out, some of the local clubs that black people could actually go to. And he would actually come to those clubs and sit in the back. And what he was actually doing was taking some of those songs from some of those local blues players and actually making some of those songs his hits. Exactly. Let's not get it twisted. And I don't want to claim conspiracy theory. I don't want to claim like I'm, I'm, I'm racist or anything. If you want to get into this conversation, go ahead and press that number one if you're on the line. If not, give us a call, 718-508-9972. But I don't want to claim conspiracy theories. But let's just be honest. Some of the biggest got top records right started now. off as... We have a call? Go ahead, bring yeah. it up. Yeah, we do have a caller right now. Call you out live, but we'll never talk to the with Nick Eaton. Hello? Hello? Can you all hear me? Hey. Yeah, what's going on, Charlie? Hey, what's Charlie, going on? on? Hey, what's going on? You all walk right down my alley with this one. Now, y'all know I could not uh, not talk about this. Uh, I think that it's very important for people to understand that there has been, someone said they didn't want to mention conspiracy theory or say that they were racist or anything. And I want to say this because I was talking to a a writer in London today about this very subject. And that was the thing that he said. I told him, I said, listen, there's a report. How many of you are familiar with the Harvard report? Somewhat. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what the Harvard report was about? A, a, A little bit. But go ahead and elaborate for me and elaborate for our listeners. Okay. All right. The Harvard report was commissioned by none other than Clyde Davis. And the commission was to study the African-American-owned record companies and to see how to best, uh, I guess, take advantage of those record companies. Because what they noticed was every time a black record made it to the top of the black chart, that same record wound up being on the top ten of the pop charts. So they were projecting the future, and they were like, if this trend continues, what will happen is in 20 or 30 years, these guys will be our major competition. They'll be biggest major companies. And they'll build their own infrastructure. They'll have their own um money to compete with us and they're actually selling records to white people. So we it wasn't about racism, it was about sheer business. I mean if you got competition that is in danger of destroying your business, what are you gonna do? You're gonna acquire them or you're gonna take their hits. You're gonna take it out. So what happens is the, 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 the deal was the 
when it came back, and I'm paraphrasing here, you need to read it or read Nelson George's Death of Rhythm and Blues. What happened was they said, okay, there are three ways to take these companies out. One, we can do the basic corporate raid thing, meaning we can take those artists and, that are on the label that aren't getting paid as much as, say, the major mainstream artists. We can offer them money to leave their company. The smaller companies, we can tie up in distribution deals. The major companies will, you know, like uh, Stacks, uh, Motown, and Philly International also got tied up in distribution deals, but they grew over a period of time. They grew the companies, and the companies wound up folding into the major. Now, once you've eliminated the major black record labels, you're now in control of the music. This is very true. This is a practice that still goes on to this day. Okay, and once you're in control of the music, you can dictate what the music sounds like. And if you're noticing, okay, the majority of people who buy this music are white people, and they want people that look like them. So what you do now is you want, you, you now you go after black radio. When these conglomerates started buying black radio, black radio no longer was locally owned and controlled. It was controlled by by the, the, the radio consultants who worked for the, these huge broadcasting corporations. So they didn't care about whether or not, you know, people in Mississippi wanted to hear Southern Soul. All they cared about is what the record companies told them to play or paid them to play. Now, this, that is very true. Now, Charlie, this is, I want to ask you about this. Um, one thing that, that I definitely wanted to talk about in this whole situation was the fact that a lot of times that the pie was cut up so much. You actually had the artists, of course the artists were getting screwed back then. We've talked about that before. We know that the artists were getting screwed then and are still getting screwed to this day. But you had, just like you said, you have these smaller black labels, or these smaller companies, period, that were putting out these blues records, they were putting out these Southern Soul records, and you actually had people within that company working with the larger companies. Now, we all know that, just like I explained earlier to our listeners that don't really know about covering songs, you pay the license, you can take, you can basically take the song. It's pretty much without that artist's permission. If anybody's familiar with the movie Dream Girls, it was the same situation when um, Effie put out the song and then they took the song and and, and had Dina cover it, and all of a sudden it was just a big disco hit. What was the part that was played by some of these record executives at these very labels who were working with these artists? What was the part by them that was played that kind of contributed to this double cross? Because they were just looking at the bottom line for money. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, here's what you have to understand about covering tunes. The way it's worked is even if, let's say you wrote a tune and you put the tune out there, and then I cover the tune, it's who you own the publishing to the tune is the one that's going to get paid. So the writer, yeah. in this instance, gets paid regardless of who puts it. He gets paid on both songs. So the writer's not going to object to anybody covering the song. In fact, the more people that cover the song, the merrier. The, right, the more money the writer owns. Right. For the writer and owner of the pub, of the publishing, 
And that's who actually has control over the song. The artists themselves, unless they wrote the song and own the publishing, doesn't have control. Okay? Exactly. And exactly. if you're a black recording artist, hold on, let me, let me get, let me finish. And if you're a black recording artist, or a black songwriter, rather, or the songwriter of a black record that only gets played on black radio, and then along comes a pop radio uh, a record company telling you, hey, Fat Boom wants to cover this Tutti Fruity record. And now all of a sudden you may be getting a thousand spins or five hundred spins a week. Now you're going to two to five thousand spins a week. Exactly. And you know what that means in terms of publishing. That's a bigger bottom line for whoever controls the publishing. So that's exactly. why nobody stood up to say, hey, I own this song, and this song is a black song or R&B song, and I want to keep it authentic. They're not going to do that because then they're cutting into their pockets. So it, again, goes back to economics, more so than race. Race just happens to fall into the picture. Now, the one thing I've always wondered the ratio of blues artists or R&B artists covering the white tunes. I can remember um, originally, uh, the, everybody loves Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You, but that was originally Dolly Parton, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah, you're correct. You're 100% correct okay. on that. Now, the ratio between covering blacks, blacks that cover white songs and, and, and so forth, it was, it was kind of skewed. You know, it wasn't really... That many black artists covering those white songs. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's now they true. have the legal right to do it with the radio programmers, though. And I, I do, and I, I wish it escapes me right now, but I wish I could remember well, I, the article about a lot of radio programmers that refuse to play black records, no matter if it was a cover of a white one or, 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 or what have you. Of course, you know, the racial times, you know, they just would not play a lot of black artists then, but. In an effort to kind of whiten these artists up Like I said a little earlier We look at the golden age of Motown We look at those classic soul records At the time they were considered pop records mm-hmm. They were considered pop records And I can Go ahead I can no, recall no, no, Etta no. James Speaking on the documentary on Motown And she said she hated Like she, she hated listening to those Motown records Because you know Motown was Chess's major competitor in terms of the black market. And in terms of the artist, you know, Chess had more of a gritty sound. Definitely had more of a gritty sound. Well, she said herself, here's, you know. Here's, here's, here's what I tell people, and I remember telling Shokwe Lamumba this in an interview. One has to understand this about Motown. Mary Gordy's intention was never to sell his records to black people. Just solely to black. He didn't see himself as a race. Because remember, back in the day, in the beginning, black music was called race music. He didn't see himself making race music. Okay? Gotcha. You, can you hear me? He, called yeah, his, he, didn't call, he didn't call his record label Motown the sound of black America. He said the sound of America. Young, yeah. Young America, my baby, the sound of young America. 
he knew he intentionally made music that would be palatable to both blacks and whites. He intentionally moved into a slicker sound. Now that doesn't take away from the authenticity of it being soul music, but it was a slicker type of soul compared to say, like you said, chess records. Or I like to compare it to stacks. Stacks, yep. Yeah. Okay? That sound was a grittier, bluesier, more soulful, earthier sound. But Stax, ironically, had blacks and whites making the music. Mm, yeah. Steve yeah, Parker right was a white guy. You see what I'm saying? The original Barcades had a white uh, member in it. But I think that has a lot to do with the proximity of living in the South. In the South, blacks and whites, although they were racially segregated, you white folk had black people in their homes as maids. They had them as maids and handymen. And a lot of times, the maids were the ones raising the children. So the maid is the one listening to the, 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 the black radio station. The white child mm-hmm. grows up listening to it right along with the maid. So and I didn't even think that up, So the child grows up listening to black music, listening to the maid singing gospel, listening to the maid singing blues. You you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. I see what you I see exactly what you're saying. And you're right. I didn't even think about it from the from that aspect of. You know them growing up with maids and, and and them being so heavily influenced by black music. You're right about that. You're absolutely right. You, you see what I'm saying? So black music becomes a part of their lifestyle, and it becomes something they want to do. That's why it's the people who protested black music being played on the radio on white radio the most were Southerners. Now, what we want to get into, because mm-hmm. we are talking about the crossover versus the double cross. I think one of the biggest double crosses, and this is this is one thing that that I feel is is still a major, major, you know, a wrong that was done to a lot of artists then and still to this day. How black artists were systematically taken out of a genre that they created, being rock music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little earlier about Chuck Berry. Uh, uh-huh. You had artists like. Jimi Hendrix, even mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people don't even give them this credit, but Ike and Tina Turner. Yeah, you know, and I, their contributions I, 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 I agree. Ike Turner is one of the uh, major pioneers. In fact, it, there's a book I reviewed for the Washington Post. It was Ike Turner's biography. In the introduction, Richard Little Richard, who is mm-hmm. the architect of rock and roll. And certainly one of the great pioneers of it. Little Richard credits Ike Turner with teaching him how to play rock and roll. Also teaching him how to phrase in terms of singing. Ike has been written out of the history books because primarily what's love got to do with it. Yeah, exactly. Correct me if I was wrong, wasn't Jimi Hendrix... At one point, a part of Ike Turner's band. I think he was, but I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure. I do know that he was a part of Little Richard's band. I know that much. 
He was part of Little Richard's band. I'm not sure about Ike. He was part of Little Richard, and I know he was part of the Isley Brothers band. I know that much. But Ike Turner's band, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. I think when you come into today's times, which is, I think, my ultimate point in this whole show about the crossover versus the double cross, how much this affected black music and how it was still affecting black music, today you are very scarce to find successful black rock bands or successful black rock singers. You know, I can't remember the last time Lenny Kravitz put out a record. You know, uh, and he, I would say, in terms of today's time, is probably the most popular of, of black rock artists. Yeah. But yeah. I see and, the same and, and thing. Larson, and I, I don't mean to be facetious, but you also have to kind of look at the look that Lenny Kravitz brought to I mean, you look at Living Color and look at uh, Lenny Kravitz and look at the longevity and the success that Lenny Kravitz has had versus the longevity and success of Living Color. Their front man is a dark-skinned African-American. Lenny Kravitz is a light-skinned with dreadlocks African-American. So I think that, I mean, I hate to sound this way, but, I mean, this is America we're talking about. It's the truth. I think that played a role in it. I mean, you've got Cody Chestnut, who's a rock singer. It's like, I'm a, I, I'm, there's a documentary called Electric Purgatory that I'm a part of that talks about the plight of the black rocker. Because if you think about it, you talk about it. Rock music was started by black people. But now everybody that controls every aspect of rock music, whether it's the record companies, whether it's the publicists, whether it's even the the writers, the majority of those people are white. And when you try to get in it, they look at you with some kind of suspicion, like, what do you know about this music? If, You're if, right. if things were fair and equal in rock, then Fishbone would be superstars. They would be as big as any rock band out there. They'd be as big as Fish. They'd be as big as, um, uh, what's the group that did Port Soda? Uh, oh, I can't even think of the jam band. What's the name of the group? Uh, Pearl Jam. They would be as big as Pearl Jam. They would be as big as uh, any of those bands. But they're not because of the color of their skin. Civil rights. And now I see the same thing. I see the same thing happening right now in R&B. We've talked about for years, not only just talking to the channel with Nick Eden, we've talked on the Middleman Talk Show about how R&B has been loose. Like, I don't think that a lot of people realize that R&B is still it's rhythm and blues. And there's a lot of rhythm going on right now, but it's not a lot of blues. They've lightened up uh, that sound. They're going for that more Euro pop dance kind of feel. You have well, artists I like have a, Neo. I have, a theory. I have a theory about that. I have a theory about okay. that. You want to hear it? Definitely. I think that the reason why they're lightening R&D up is so that more less talented singers can sing that type of music. It's very rare, and don't and don't get me wrong, because this is definitely not racist. Because black people are always quick to accept people from other cultures who play the music with a real degree of sincerity and authenticity. Mm-hmm. I'll say that again for any listener who thinks that we're, we're we're being racist. Black people have always been willing to accept 
anyone from any race or creed who plays black music with any real degree of sincerity and authenticity. Perfect example is Tina Marie. Before Tina yeah, Marie died, yeah. when you go to Tina Marie shows, the majority of her shows, the people in that show were black people. Mm-hmm. Okay? We love, I love Tina Marie to, to this day. I respect and honor her for one reason and one re- two reasons. First reason, the woman can sing her ass off and she really, excuse me, I'm sorry for the cursing, but she no, can sing her butt off and she also, most importantly, never sold the genre of R&B out. Now, what do I mean True. by that? A white woman with her voice could have easily went pop. Easily. Easily. She could have gone to Barbara Streisand way. She could have gone. Oh. You're, you're right. She could have gone that way anytime. Anytime. She didn't do it because of her commitment to the genre. Okay. It's it's funny that you said that too, because now I think about the artist like, you know, no disrespect to him, but someone like Usher. You know, Usher has been in the business since what ninety four. He's been he's been doing his thing for a while. He's kind of traded in that sound for he's kind of, he's traded in his traditional R and B sound pop appeal to him. But let's 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 not get it twisted. Usher's biggest albums were R and B albums. Confessions was an R and B album that sold ten million. And he's gone for this whole Euro pop thing. Same thing with Neil. Chris Brown has done it. You know, you have these new artists like Jason Barulo and and and, Tyrus, and and probably the biggest one, going back to what you were saying about us accepting someone of another race through our music, Justin Bieber. I've heard so many times they're saying that Justin Bieber is the new Michael Jackson and he's the you know, he's oh, the second please. coming of Michael Jackson and, and this and that and I'm not being funny, but it's not based off of his singing ability. I'm not taking anything away from the young man, not at all. But I'm telling you right now that you can go to any church in the South and you can go to any church, almost any church, and you can hear a young man, probably the same age as Justin Bieber, that can absolutely destroy him vocally. Uh, but agreed. because it's a young, because it's a, a a young white male doing R and B, it's just, it's amazing to see how some of these, how, how some of our, our 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 children are just gravitating towards him, and they're just clinging on to him like he's the best thing. Well, ever. I mean, but they're gravitating toward him because the machine is behind him. You have to understand. The machine is behind him. And and I'm going to explain to you why the machine is behind him. I have a friend by the name of Vasti Jackson. He's from Macomb, Mississippi. He's a, blues, he's a third-generation blues musician. And, you know, he and I were talking about the politics of music and the racial politics of music. And, you know, he said, you have to understand that white America isn't in the business of selling black, and he used the D-I-C-K, the white chick. They're not into that. (laughs) I mean, think about this now. Think about this. Understand what music can do. The power of music can bring people together racially. 
if you're listening to music and you're listening, if you're a white kid who never knew anything about what's going on, and you're listening to that music, and you're feeling that music, the next thing you know is you try to, you start to have empathy for the people who make the music. Mm-hmm. Look at hip hop. Look at how many people are walking around who are white kids who listen to hip hop, and it changed the way their whole swag. They changed their whole swag. Yeah, child, I agree with you, man, because I've seen some young cats that sing blues, white kids, man. And you're right, they empathize with the plight of all those artists that they, they idolize, like a Muddy Waters or or B.B. Uh, uh, King or whatever the old artists that there were. Man, you right, look at the Rolling Stones. How big oh, yeah. they were Muddy Waters. Oh, yeah. Look at it. And, 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 and understand that there's a writer by the name of Playtale Benjamin who has uh, an essay called uh, Black Music and, and Adventures in Western Culture. And his theory is that you really can't listen to any type of music with any degree of love and play that music with any degree of love and authenticity without becoming culturally those people. So if you're if your if your mission is to play black music and you love black music, it behooves you to, to, to really become culturally black. Mm-hmm. Not racially black, but culturally black. But culturally black. But, have, yeah. but and have some kind of understanding and love for the culture. The same way if I were to play classical music. I if I were to play it with any degree of authenticity, any degree of skill. I would have to study classical music, and eventually what's going to happen is I'm going to learn about Rogue period. I'm going to learn about the Italians. I'm going to learn about the Germans. I'm going to learn about the French composers. And it's going to become a part of who I am culturally. Prime example, uh, I don't know if you've seen this. They've done a lot of studies about this, but in Japan, they are absolutely in love with black music mm-hmm. If we see somebody Walking around Like I'm in Atlanta, Georgia If I see someone Walking around With a FUBU shirt on People gonna look At that person Like they're crazy Like who still wears FUBU It is selling out Most clothing lines Over there Yeah I know I know By the way I own FUBU shirt I, I do too <laughs> But I think my biggest my, my biggest point in that is It's just like you said Culturally they, they fall in love with the culture. They've absorbed the culture so much, and it's so influential on them. Fubu hasn't been a hot topic in America since the, the mid '90s, mid to mid to late '90s. I say that much, mid to late '90s. But here it is, 2011, and they're still heavily in business overseas. And they just love everything about the culture. Going back to what you were saying about the, we're not trying to sell black DFK to white chicks. Yeah, I want to go I mean, back to the movie Cadillac like Records. Think uh-huh. about Chuck Berry when he was arrested. Yes, and they didn't have a problem with Chuck Berry until they saw how white women were gravitating towards him. Same thing with uh, with with Ray Charles. Oh, they said, "Oh, you're corrupting our children." Yeah, exactly. The temptation, all of them. Exactly. That's the the precise reason because if you think about it. When you do see, like, Rich, uh, Rich, Little Richard, Little Richard became a major sensation, but let's be realistic. One of the things that helped him along, and he talked about it even in his biography, the fact that Little Richard 
was a, was a gay black male. White people felt comfortable with him being around white women. Because they mm-hmm. knew his order. Still to this day. Still to this day. With Lil Richard. They, they do. They, you are absolutely right. But don't let Trey Songz roll around, you know, some, <laughs> some white girls. It's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. It's still a problem today. It's going to be a problem. And that race, like I said, it, this is not something that, you know, I know people out there may think, well, these guys are crazy. But this is, these are real things. These are real issues that are coming up and that play in black music. I mean, um, you take the blues, for instance. There's, a, there's several blues artists have told me that in Chicago, if you're a black blues musician and you have an all-black band, you're going to catch hell getting booked in some of the major blues clubs downtown. And how crazy is that? How how crazy is the fact that they systematically, that's another genre, honestly, that if you go to most blues, because I go to a lot, my favorite blues fest was the Alabama Jazz and Blues Fest. I love it. I absolutely love it. But you see more white artists playing that festival now than you do see black artists. Well, I mean, to an extent, I mean, you got to look at it. There, there are several factors that play into that. One, a lot of young black people aren't learning to play the blues. We look at the blues as being passe, but I think that has a lot to do with what they're exposed to. You turn on corporate radio, and how, how if I turn on, what's the mainstream uh, radio that most black people listen to in Atlanta? Uh, 103103 how much jazz, None. how much jazz how much jazz will I hear on that radio station? None. I put it to you like much, this. And you how much, how a much good example of that. Okay. A good example of that. Um I used to work for Hot one oh five point seven in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, mm-hmm. when I first got to Montgomery it was before Chris Channel bought Hot One O Five Point Seven. During mm-hmm. the day, up until three o'clock, Hot One O Five played blues and southern soul. At 3 o'clock, that's when it started playing hip-hop. And on Sundays, it played gospel. When Clearstown took over, it took all of that out. Every bit of it. It played hip-hop from the beginning of the day until the end of the day. It was non-stop hip-hop and quote-unquote mainstream R&B. Later on, now this is what's so funny, later on they added a gospel station, Hallelujah 104.3, which ended up being the number one station in the market. Now, ask yourself this. Ask yourself. Was that about money? Because you're saying the gospel station became the number one station in the market. Common sense would have said, well, we bought this station because the ratings were high and it was doing well with the format it already had. Why would I change that format unless I have an agenda to push? Unless you have an agenda. Exactly. 
one of the few popular stations I know that still plays a plethora of it, and we're getting close to the end of the show. But um, in Gulfport, Mississippi, my hometown, uh, WJZD 94.5. It's a black home, it's a black home station owned by Rick Daniels, and they still keep that format. They play blues and southern soul during the day. At 3 o'clock, that's when they start playing hip-hop and R&B. He's had plenty of offers from these major conglomerates that want to come in and they want to do this. They actually tried to start a, a channel, a clear channel station down there that plays hip-hop and R&B, and it lasted for about a year and a half. And then pretty much after Katrina, they switched it over to Sports uh, Talk. Because they just they, they they could not compete. I believe I believe that there is a want for it. I believe that anyone who is who has a love for music and is musical eventually will learn. You know, will will go back in time. And what I say about what I say about that is I remember um, being in college and one of my professors saying, "What's so sad?" I can't, went to talk to him a few years ago. He was like, "What's so sad is I look out and I see this marching band perform every day, and the sad thing about it is." I promise you that none of those trumpet players out there have a Miles Davis record. Oh, man, that's wrong. Oh, man. Yeah, but that's now true. When, that's... It's true, but when, now when I, was a co- when I was in college, oh, yeah, I can tell you. And I'm, not, I'm, only, I'm 30 years old. It just goes to show how much it changed in the scope of, like, five years. We, had, we knew who – there are two players that have no idea who John Phillips Stewart is. <laughs> They don't know, yeah. like, there's a, there's a lack of a mu- music appreciation overall. Not just with black music, just with music in general. And I think that kind of feeds into the whole thing about this corporate engine taking over and doing all this. That's a good point. And like I said, I agree. I don't want to clock conspiracy theory, but there's, there's a lack of music. They've completely, at, at Alabama State, they've taken the music business department, which is growing, they took it out of the music building. You know the reason behind that? It's too musical. They moved it over to communications. This is about the record industry. Now, when I was there, you had to take a certain amount of theory. You had to take a certain amount of music appreciation. You had to take keyboarding. You had to take sightseeing, ear training. The tools that would, they would give you the tools to be successful at what you do. You still have to have an ear for, to make quality records, in my opinion, you still have to have an ear for music. And you just don't have that anymore. Huh. And you've yeah. taken the record industry out of the music department and put it into communication. So what does that say for the future record executives that come from that program? Um, How many A and R's do we have nowadays that were but, but, but here's what you have to understand. The record industry now the old record industry used to be about the music because it was mostly people who started the labels it was their love of the music that prompted them to start the label Leonard Chess loved blues he loved blues he loved folk music he loved jazz he loved rock and roll he started a label and on that label he had some of the best blues musicians in the country but he also had some of the best Ramsey Lewis was on Chess Records. Minnie Ripperton's first group was on Chess Records. One of the most innovative, integrated rock bands in the country that was called Rotary Connection. Minnie Ripperton was a member of that band. Okay. okay. What we're going to do is we're going to hit and 
Charlie, hate to cut you off. We're going to get close. We're coming to the end of the show. Part two next week of Crossover versus the Double Cross. We have a special guest coming in that's going to talk about his personal experience within this. I want to thank everybody who joined in today. Charlie, thank you for calling in, sharing some of that knowledge. We always love having you on the shows with us. No problem. And we next week, guys, we will see you. Don't, don't forget to tune in this Sunday. Okay. This Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with the Middleman Talk Show. And this is a great discussion today, guys. I can't wait for it next week to continue on. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, right. go ahead and hit that outro for me, Hey, thanks again, Charlie. No problem, brother. Thank you. The middle man shouted, Big Crit shouted. Yeah. Now I ain't sure what you was tuning in to. We'll pay attention to the real talk. What we here for, so take a listen. Time out, take a minute. Shout in and learn some. Put your mind to grind the world. You destined to earn some. Linda, yeah. Comment on what you hear. Let's figure out this master plan to put this thing in gear. Don't matter if you hood or you corporate. Don't get you got a wheel to do way better than you were doing. Well, then you fortunate. Take a stand. Stop complaining about what you ain't got. Hating on the next man because he was down the wreck shop. Every Sunday, tune in. Go live 6 p.m. Blog Talk Radio.com. The middle me. Hey, what's happening? The middle me. Hey, what's happening? The middle me. Blogtalkradio.com. Man, I'm waiting hey, on man. this part too, man. Waiting on it. Man, I wish I could tell y'all the guest. I wish I could, but I gotta get some. More. I gotta get some. There's some things I gotta, you know, get ironed out with him real quick. But I'm telling you, it's gonna be. You're gonna hear a story next week. Most definitely. You're gonna hear. When you confirm that, man, we need to make sure we let everybody know. Everybody know. Yeah. Everybody. I enjoyed this, man. I mean, you made some great salad points. Great. Yeah. Wow. I can't wait for the Sunday, man. The Sunday is gonna be hot too. Ooh. Yeah, man down, baby. Man down. <laughs> Going down. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Alan finally wants to say something about the whole show today. Hey, man. <laughs> Long day, man. Long day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.